If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Many have argued that Western civilization was born in ancient Greece by combining art, democracy, religion, and science. Fewer have explored the role that psychedelic experiences played in building these traditions as we know them. On today's episode, we're joined remotely by New York Times bestseller Brian Murarescu, who takes us on a trip back in time to uncover the importance of psychedelic experiences to ancient Greece and early Christian culture. So I went in hunt of not just any sacrament from ancient Greece or early Christianity, uh, but I went in hunt of psychedelic sacraments specifically. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Believe it or not, it took me about 12 years to research and write this book. Um, And I'd like to share with you what that key is. And there's a reason that the title of this talk is How to Die Before You Die, because as I found it through the course of my research, this is really one of the ancient principles uh, that was prized in antiquity. And I think across time, this concept of dying before dying, dying in this life, um, in some kind of real sense, in order to achieve a sense of, uh, of immortality. Let's go down this rabbit hole of history and try and find out the answer to the best kept secret in history, which is not fancy marketing. Uh, This is what a Houston Smith, perhaps the most influential scholar, uh, religious scholar of the 20th century referred to this hunt as, uh, which in some ways is a hunt for the Holy Grail. The best kept secret in history as Houston Smith saw it were the original sacraments of Western civilization. So I went in hunt of not just any sacrament from ancient Greece or early Christianity, uh, but I went in hunt of psychedelic sacraments specifically. Um, This is not my theory. This is an old idea from at least the 1970s, as you can tell from the ties in this photo. Uh, this, this, This idea was written about before then, but the way it came across my radar, most people's radar was in 1978, this scandalous book was published, The Road to Eleusis, Unveiling the Secret of the Mysteries. Uh, Now, Eleusis, for those who don't know, is kind of like the spiritual capital of the ancient world, maybe the Vatican of the ancient Greece, uh, about 13 miles northwest of Athens. Pilgrims for 2,000 years would trek to this temple to drink a magic potion 
and become divine, to confront their fear of death, to overcome that fear of death and become immortal. Hence the same theme about dying before dying. Something happened there in Eleusis and we're not sure exactly what, but it had to do with, uh, with achieving divinity. There's a great Greek word for this, apotheosis. And these two gentlemen were well aware of the lore and legends behind Eleusis. And in 1978, they released this scandalous book. On the left is Albert Hoffman, uh, who if anyone knows about psychedelics would be Albert. He famously synthesized LSD uh, back in the 1930s from this naturally occurring fungus called ergot. So I'm not, I'm not sure if people have heard of ergot, uh, but it's this natural fungus that produces all kinds of crazy alkaloids, including LSD. And on his right is his co-author, Gordon Wasson. Uh, now you might not know who Gordon is, but in 1955, he traveled to Mexico to participate in this ceremony um, with psilocybin containing mushrooms. And he's largely responsible for uh, the, the birth of the pop psychedelic movement in the 1960s. I mean, after, uh, after Gordon went to Mexico, he was followed by the likes of Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan and everybody else. Uh, so, so that individual is really responsible for what would happen in the generation to come. He teams up not only with, with Albert, uh, the LSD expert, but with uh, the fellow on the left there, who's uh, a guy named Carl Ruck. He's a professor of classics at Boston University. In the picture there, he's only a couple of years older than me, actually. He's now 85 years old. Uh, and he joined up with Gordon and Albert to try and tease out the details for this psychedelic potion at Eleusis. Uh, so in the ancient records, we have some sense of what that potion was. We know it was kind of like a primitive beer, like a barley-based potion uh, that was mixed with water and mint. And that's pretty much all we have. And so this figure has spent the past four decades, and there he is today, trying to prove that that magical potion from Eleusis, again, the spiritual capital of the ancient world that called to everybody from Plato to Marcus Aurelius for over 2000 years. Uh, Carl has spent his career as a classicist trying to prove that that potion really at, at, the, at the seat, at the foundation of Western civilization was a psychedelic potion. And their, their book is very interesting on, you know, they, they use literary sources, they look at archeological sources. The thing is at the time in the late 1970s, there wasn't a lot of hard data. Um, since, since the publication of that book and relatively recently over the past 10, 20 years, new sciences have come along um, like archeochemistry, which is the, as the, the name implies, the, the combination of not just excavation field work, but actual chemistry, organic chemistry, looking into the contents of some of these ancient chalices. And so for the very first time, we're actually able to peer in to the past by, by, by tapping into the residue that was left in some of these chalices and containers and vessels from antiquity. It's a very exciting time. And so um, I first came across this idea in the late 90s when I was a, a classicist myself as an undergrad, and I since went to law school and abandoned the whole hunt. But then it all came back on my radar in about 2007 when I started reading about uh, these psychedelic studies, these clinical studies happening at Johns Hopkins and NYU and elsewhere. And the testimony from those people uh, was really strange to me. The, the, these people with one and only dose of psilocybin we're talking about very mysterious things, very mystical, quasi-religious experiences. You, you have atheists talking about finding God, for example, uh, with one and only dose of this potent psychedelic. And so it occurred to me that if that's happening today, why wasn't that happening 2,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago? And so I went on a mad hunt for 12 years to try and find 
the hard scientific data to test this crazy psychedelic hypothesis once and for all to see if there was uh, some truth to it. So I made my way over to Eleusis, to this um, ancient spiritual capital a couple of years ago. And I got to talking uh, with the archeologists, the excavators on, on site there. Um, and I found myself walking through the ancient temple grounds and meandering into the museum and looking at all these artifacts of whatever was happening here two and a half thousand years ago, perhaps 3000 years ago. Um, and inside the museum, you see lots of chalices like this. So, you know, we, we, we know this potion was there. We don't know the exact sequence of events, when it was drunk, how it was drunk. Um, but we do know that as many as 3000 people at one time could cram their way into this temple on site there that was dedicated to Demeter, the goddess of the grain, hence a beer potion, and her daughter Persephone, who's famously abducted into the underworld uh, by the king of death, Hades, and then is resurrected. So there, there, there's some intensely ritual element. There, 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 there's something really meaningful happening here in this death and rebirth experience. It wasn't just about witnessing the death and rebirth of Persephone herself, from the testimony that that survived, the initiates themselves went through some kind of visceral experience. Plato himself talks about witnessing the blessed sight and vision that could be captured at Eleusis, again, which, which begs the question, was this some kind of theatrical performance, something you saw with the physical eyes, or was this something that really happened within the mind's eye? And was there a potion you know, splashing around these ancient vessels, these ancient chalices, these grails that somehow gave access in some mind altering state to a higher sense of reality. And I, and I love to look at this artifact in particular uh, because I find it kind of mind blowing. Um, Carl Kerenyi, who's a very mainstream uh, classicist scholar writing in the 1960s, re really, really harps on this piece specifically, which obviously comes from the classical period. It was found at the sanctuary and it's it's referred to as the Eucrates votive relief. And in Greek at the bottom there, you see Eucrates on the right, his name is inscribed there. And before it is the word Demeter. And we think, or Carl thinks that uh, this is actually dedicated to Persephone whose name shall never be mentioned. So this is this is already working in encoded language. But what, what Kerenyi says about this artifact is spectacular. He says that what you have here is someone leaving testimony, um, a votive thanks, a thanksgiving to Demeter and Persephone for restoring his vision. Uh, Kadeni talks about this blind person, this blind initiate going to Eleusis and somehow having their sight restored. I mean, how can that happen? We're talking about something very supernatural. Um, and yet there are mainstream scholars who've been, been really trying to figure out what it was about this vision, this beatific vision. In fact, Kedeni uses that term specifically, and he borrows it from the language of Christianity to describe what was happening at this Eleusis site. Uh, and so again, all, all this circumstantial data kind of points to something. Um, whether that was a psychedelic brew or not, I, I spent you know, all these years trying to figure out, and uh, it took me back tw at least 12,000 years. Uh, so what you have here um, is Gobekli Tepe, which is this archaeological site that was unearthed in the 1990s. Um, and uh, what's fascinating about this, amongst other things, is that it's just not supposed to be there. Gobekli Tepe is thousands of years before, before Stonehenge, um, even longer before the high civilizations of antiquity. And yet there's this, there's this megalithic monumental architecture, uh, which Klaus Schmidt, the original archeologist who's now deceased, 
talked about the depiction of some kind of gods. And, and, and if, if there was spirituality um, in prehistory, that this has something to do with that. But what's strange about Gobekli Tepe, amongst all the strange things, I mean, these are essentially hunter-gatherers coming together to this pilgrimage site to erect this monolithic architecture, they found these, these limestone troughs and basins. And in there in 2012, they also tested positive for the remains of a beer. So we, 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 we do know that, that calcium oxalate, at least in the initial test here, is present. Um, we need more testing, we need more details. But you know, we, we can say that we think beer goes back at least 12, 13,000 years. And the reason I, I spent some time looking into Gobekli Tepe is because I'm trying to figure out what beer meant uh, to antiquity, not, not just in, in prehistory, but maybe the ancient Greeks, and maybe there was something about beer specifically that tied them together. And maybe it wasn't just any kind of beer, but beer that was mixed with different things, specifically ergot, because the, the, the thesis in 1978 was that that primitive beer, that magic potion at Eleusis, was actually mixed with a kind of ergot or some, some alkaloid that was derived from ergot. So I didn't find any ergot in these basins 12,000 years ago. Um, I was really just on the hunt for the actual chemical botanical evidence for any kind of beer or wine. And it does show up quite, quite old. As, as I move forward, here's the famous Nestor's cup. This is you know, into the Mycenaean period, 1500 BC more or less. Um, and, and there, um, uh, archaeochemist at University of Pennsylvania, Pat McGovern, did find the actual organic remains of a kind of beer and a wine and a mead. Throw it all together in this really interesting concoction. Again, no drugs, no hard sign of drugs, but when you do look into the literature, uh, again, more and more recently, you are finding the organic remains of really interesting things being turned up. This is, this is Pat himself in the museum at the University of Pennsylvania showing off another mixed beverage um, a ritual cocktail, as he calls it, uh, from Phrygia. Same kind of thing, beer, wine, mead uh, being mixed together in a really funky way. But I wanted to find the drugs. I wanted to find this, this, this ergot. And so um, even though there weren't any vessels available for testing at Eleusis itself, and I did ask the excavator why that was the case, um, they'd all been cleaned. All, all the chalices there that I showed you before had been treated for conservation purposes. And so whatever organic residue had been in there at some point was no longer testable. So I took a big step back and I thought about the ancient world and I thought about the Greek presence across the Mediterranean and it took me to, to Iberia, what now is Spain. And so that, that could look like a Greek island in the middle of the Aegean, that's actually the coast of Spain. Um, uh, that, that's Asclepius looking out um, over the, the Mediterranean, which is really interesting. Um, not far from this Greek colony in the classical period, uh, this farmhouse was discovered. Um, and the people who, who founded this place were, uh, were from a Greek colony called Phokaia. They, they imprinted Persephone onto their coins, the same Persephone you would find at Eleusis. Uh, and the people who, who visited this sanctuary uh, would make these terracotta heads, which the archeologists on site believe represents either Demeter or Persephone. You see very Greco-Italic amphorae. You see this, an incense burner, uh, with the face of the goddess printed onto it. Um, you see all kinds of ritual objects like this Dionysian vase, again, in the middle of a farm, um, in the middle of what now is Spain. Uh, interesting stuff. Uh, aside from all these artifacts, there was this sanctuary and this Triptolemus uh, figure was found not too far away. Triptolemus is essentially the missionary of the mysteries of Eleusis. He was tasked by the goddesses with spreading the religion of the mysteries. 
And it's interesting to find Triptolemus on site there because when you compare what was found in Spain with what sits in the museum at Eleusis, it's very, very strange. You see the same figure, the same missionary on his flying dragon cart, uh, which is which is kind of shocking. So there, there was some kind of mystery presence uh, there in ancient Iberia, specifically inside this sanctuary. And what you find in the sanctuary is uh, the remains of a dog sacrifice, a hearth, um, all kinds of ritual items, a Greek altar of pentelic marble, this one, which only could have come from Greece, by the way. So clearly very Greek, uh, Greco mysteries happening here, but not just that. In the center, there's a chalice. That chalice was discovered in this same Greek sanctuary. It's dated to the second century BC. And uh, over 20 years ago, it was tested under optical microscopy uh, to see what was in there, what was once in there. And lo and behold, uh, it turned up evidence for the residue of beer, just like the kind of primitive beer you would have expected in that Kukion potion, the magic potion from ancient Greece that called to all, all these initiates for 2000 years, uh, the same kind of beer potion uh, that, that, that uh, Wasson and Hoffman and Ruck hypothesized in 1978 was this psychedelic brew, but where's the psychedelics? In addition to the residue of beer, this also tested positive for the microscopic remains of ergot, the very same ergot that was hypothesized in 1978 and for which there was no hard scientific data to prove it until this woman, Enriqueta Pons, unearthed that tiny, tiny chalice. It's about two inches high, um, which is really telling. Um, and the reason most folks haven't heard of it is because that find was published in Catalan, which is her, her native language. And I think for that reason, um, it didn't really uh, disseminate uh, across the academic community and, and just lay there largely unknown. I found it through some Spanish journals and um, had the pleasure of meeting the archaeologist on, on site, taking a tour of the site, um, seeing the, the chalice for myself. I brought an old friend along. There's Professor Ruck taking a look at the tiny chalice that could potentially vindicate this very, very controversial theory about the ancient Greeks. And so um, you know, amazing as it is, it just raises more questions, which is the point of any good mystery, right? What was the relationship between this Greek sanctuary dedicated to the mysteries in ancient Iberia with the actual center at Eleusis? We don't know. Uh, we don't know the the details, and and we don't know if that the kind of potion that was in that tiny chalice is the same as the potion that was drunk by these initiates in Eleusis. But it's a pretty compelling clue, um, and we're 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 at least in the field, uh, again, of that hard archaeobotany, the hard archaeochemistry that I think has the potential uh, to really solve some of these riddles once and for all. And so the whole first half of my book really focuses on the ancient Greeks and this Kukion potion. And I, and I start the book that way to raise a big question. If the Greeks were using drugs to find God, if there really were these psychedelic potions, and again, there's much more testing, uh, much more excavations, you know, much more research that needs to be done to tie all these threads together. But, but given this initial proof of concept, and that, that's how I see that little miniature chalice right there, is just this breathtaking proof of concept. But if this was all the case, if there's some validity to the psychedelic hypothesis, what does that say about Christianity? And there's, there's a reason I raise that. Um, you know, the New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, ancient Greek is the sacred language of Christianity, and I don't think there's, there's any way to get around that. Uh, the Gospels are written in Greek. Paul's letters, virtually half of the New Testament, are written in Greek to Greek speakers 
in these fledgling churches that before there were brick and mortar basilicas and actual uh, you know, buildings, there were, um, there, Christianity was this cult. It was this illegal cult that met in secret um, to, to consume a very strange thing, to consume the flesh and blood of a God and nothing less than that. This is the promise in John's gospel. And so it raises a big question for me. What kind of wine was this? When you think of when you think of the Last Supper, when you think of that great Da Vinci painting, right? And you have the wine displayed on the table. And every Sunday you can walk into a mass anywhere in the world and look at this wine being consecrated by the priests. What kind of wine was that? Why do we assume that the wine of today had any resemblance to the wine of antiquity? Um, it doesn't. The, the minute you start looking into ancient wine, you are confronted with a really versatile potion, M much like this, this magic potion from Eleusis. The thing about ancient wine is that it was routinely mixed with plants and herbs and toxins. And before you hear, I just have a, a manuscript, the Materia Medica, just, just a couple lines from Dioscorides. Dioscorides wrote in ancient Greek in the first century AD at the same time the gospels themselves were being written. Um, and he's considered the father of drugs for a big reason. In just one book alone, he has something like 56 detailed recipes for mixing botanicals into wine. And I, I focus on just one here because of what he says that uh, the black nightshade does to the wine. When you add that plant to the wine, in Greek there, it causes fantasias u aedais, which is not unpleasant visions. That's a psychedelic, that, that's, there's something hallucinogenic being added to that wine. Um, so there, there's no mistake that, you know, mainstream scholars refer to this as no ordinary wine. You know, to classicists, this is not really breaking news, but uh, for the rest of us, it, again, it raises questions. If the Greeks had knowledge of the botanical landscape and the New Testament is written in Greek and Christianity is born into a very Greek world where the first churches you know, are springing up in Rome or Corinth or Ephesus, um, what kind of wine would have been available to them? So when you look into the classical period, the Greeks had very specific visions about wine. It wasn't just this beer. It wasn't just the kukion at Eleusis. For the Greeks, wine was a very strange thing. In this one festival that I call like the Greek Halloween, the Anthesteria, we see some of these, these images survive. So this is a lakuthos from the classical period. If you look closely there, um, you see angels and demons ascending and descending into the pithos, into this vat of wine that's uncorked for the holiday. That was in honor of Dionysus, the Greek god of wine and madness and ecstasy. You, you, you see the, the angels literally escaping the wine. They lived in the wine and the demons are being, are being stuffed back into it in very ceremonial fashion. Um, what did wine do to people? This, right? Uh, so I, I say in the book, how many people have you seen leaving the Sunday mass looking like this? Um, this, this, this was the ceremonial ritual dedicated to Dionysus. This is the Borghese vase. You can go see this for yourself in the Louvre, uh, which is this, uh, th this breathtaking artifact, but you see the chalice of wine uh, that that has been dropped from the initiate's hand. He has to be carried along by by a goat man, uh, by a shaggy-tailed goat man satyr who's carrying the ritual uh, implements of Dionysus. So again, what kind of wine was this? Because Dionysus is not the god of alcohol. Alcohol is a word that we pick up uh, from the Semitic languages, from Arabic, alcohol. Um, the, the Greeks didn't have the concept of Dionysus as the god of psychedelics, uh, uh, rather the god of um, uh, just alcohol, he was the god of intoxication more broadly. 
And so if the Greeks had this knowledge of plants and herbs being mixed into their chalices, is it possible um, that Dionysus is some kind of god of psychedelia? It's, it's, it's a big question. Um, but there are very strange words used to describe the wine of the time. This is from Euripides. And right there, he talks about the juice of the vine and wine being a drug. And he uses that word specifically in ancient Greek, pharmakon. As a matter of fact, the word pharmakon was often used from Homer all the way to the fall of the Roman Empire to describe wine. Again, wine, there was table wine, just like there is today. But wine was also this versatile vehicle. You would, uh, you would dissolve your medicine into it, right? Uh, you, would, you would use it at the symposium uh, to lubricate discourse. Um, and it's possible you would slip your drug in there to, to heal your enemy, uh, to harm your enemy, um, or maybe just to have a recreational event, but, but in any case, potentially to commune with your God. Uh, so this is, this is the actual tradition that we're talking about here when we talk about ancient wine. It seeps itself into Christianity. At the beginning of the second century AD, uh, Ignatius of Antioch pens this letter to the Ephesians, and he refers to the Eucharist as the pharmakon athanasias, i.e. the drug of immortality. Now, is that just a bunch of you know, fancy wordplay? Is this just the, uh, the, um, the environment of the time, this tradition of, of wine as drugs? Or was there something more here? Were some of the earliest Christians actually doing, um, or committing themselves to this religious experience, this is what it meant to be a devotee of Dionysus, to, to achieve actual communion with that God. Um, it seems possible at least that in the sacramental drinking of the wine, the initiates were trying to commune with Dionysus himself, right? And so if that's the case, since, since we see a similar image pop up in Christianity again and again, it raises a big question. Um, did the Dionysus of a psychedelic potion somehow become the Jesus of a similar potion to some of the early Christians? Um, in my book, I talk a lot about the Gospel of John and the references in there, specifically in the Greek, that attempt to, to marry the Dionysus of antiquity with the Jesus of the Christian era. Uh, so I won't get into too much detail now, uh, but as just one silly example, the wedding at Cana, uh, this famous event, uh, the transformation of the water into wine. It only happens in the Gospel of John. It's this very famous event, but it's only in John. And I think John was trying to talk uh, to a very specific audience, to a Dionysian audience. And there's a great book on this, the, the Dionysian Gospel that gets into all the similarities. Uh, by the scholar Dennis McDonald, but you know, to, to someone who would have heard about the transformation of water into wine, they would have thought about all these traditions from antiquity, where the priests would leave these water basins in the Temple of Dionysus, return the next morning, and find them miraculously transformed into wine. So the whole water to wine thing was known to antiquity, um, and by presenting Jesus as that same miraculous figure, uh, it's thought that John was trying to not only highlight the signature miracle of Dionysus, but, but, but really um, put Jesus into this continuity. And what my book explores is, and everything I've been talking about is the pagan continuity hypothesis. The idea that, that the values and ceremonies and rituals of the pagan Greek world somehow made their way into ancient Christianity. Um, and so for that to be the case, uh, I, I think you know, the, the language matters. And when John talks about the Eucharist in John's gospel, he uses very visceral, very evocative language. 
in the middle of your screen, this is from the sixth chapter of John. And again, I just want to give one, one quick example here. But Jesus, when he asks you to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he uses very specific language. The verb here, trogon, does not mean to eat. It means to munch or to chew in a very visceral way. It's very strange language. It only occurs in John. What, what I think John's trying to say with that very unique word is I think, I think he's trying to evoke the imagery of the Dionysian mysteries 500 years before that. Euripides talks about this in similar language, this idea of the sparagmos, the tearing apart of the Dionysian sacrificial an animal, the blood, haimati, the same blood you see there, the sparagmos, um, the sarkos, you see the flesh there as well, the flesh and the blood and the tearing apart of that animal. And here in Euripides, very interesting. What's the phrase that we see there? Omophagon charin. Um, now, I don't agree with this translation, the glad meal. Um, this is where we get the idea Eucharist. It's the same root there, the charin, grace, thanksgiving. It's this thanksgiving meal of raw flesh, the omophagia. So between the tearing apart of that animal and the omophagia, the dipping your face into that raw flesh and this bloody mess, I think that's what John meant. Uh, I think that that's some of the imagery he was trying to evoke by the, the, the use of that word trogon. Um, and it's interesting because just after John's Eucharistic description there, uh, the Jewish community assembled at the synagogue in Capernaum uses a very specific word in Greek to describe their reaction to munching on the raw flesh of Jesus. They say skleros, like this doesn't make any sense. It means like difficult, harsh, um, hard to accept. Uh, they're basically saying like, they don't understand the idea of cannibalism. This, this, this is what the promise is in John's gospel, cannibalism. Um, and so again, raises the big question. If, if all this imagery circumstantially is meant to place Jesus into this continuity from these pagan rites into the Christian rites, does it also mean that if there was a psychedelic Eucharist, that it also made its way into early Christianity. The Eucharist of Dionysus, this, this, this meal of flesh, somehow become you know, the early meal of some of the earliest Christians. Um, and so again, in, that, in an attempt to, to look for the hard data, um, I uh, found myself uh, looking at an archeological site in Pompeii. And that's interesting for, for lots of different reasons. Um, Pompeii at the time, Southern Italy um, was known as Magna Graecia, like Great Greece. Um, so there, if you were looking for a landscape to find mysteries dedicated to Demeter and Persephone, the goddesses of Eleusis, and also to Dionysus, you'd be hard pressed to find uh, more fertile territory than right there in Southern Italy, Magna Graecia, Great Greece. And after the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, confidently dated to 79 AD, when the earliest Christians were showing up into this part of the Mediterranean, just south of Rome, where the Catholic Church would put down its global roots, by the way, um, there was another discovery from over 20 years ago. And just like that, that unusual um, ergotized beer potion in the miniature chalice from Spain, uh, over 20 years ago, and just for some reason not widely reported, was another spectacular find, um, a pharmacy. And inside this pharmacy, again, confidently dated to 79 AD were these wine containers. And inside those wine containers were the seeds of opium, cannabis, henbane, and black nightshade. Henbane in the right doses, uh, this solanaceous plant being highly hallucinogenic. And I don't think it's, it's that too far to say a kind of psychedelic potion. In addition, because whatever was in this wine was also mixed with the bones of lizards 
um, there was not only uh, plants, but bone, animal bones, lizard bones found inside this wine. So something very Shakespearean. I mean, you know, a witch's brew straight out of Macbeth. Um, and again, just like that miniature chalice from Spain, uh, I think this is some of the initial proof of concept for the idea that these psychedelic beverages potentially did exist in antiquity. And I think as we do more testing, uh, more unearthing, um, more research, and just have more open conversations about the data, I think we're going to find more and more of these things um, popping up in, in the months and years to come. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.